Well, I don't know about for you, but for me, Valentine's Day is a bit of a marker in the calendar, not because it's anything significant for us at home. We actually pass over this holiday because my wife's birthday is a few days before, and it's just too much celebration in one week. My responsibility is simply to provide a box of chocolate, and I'm off the hook. That's it. So pretty good. Pretty good. But the marker that it is for us actually is that, hey, spring's coming. Six weeks. We got six weeks, and it's going to be here. Six weeks, and things are going to start to melt, right? That's the, that's the hope I'm clinging to. I hope you agree with me. Six weeks. But for me, this is kind of a fun time of year because it's when we start, at least for me, I start to cast my mind to the summer and start thinking about when am I going to go hunting and for what? What fly fishing trip or trips uh, might I go on? And what hikes might I do? What bike rides? And I start plotting out the summer so I can get as much of it in as possible in the short window that we have. Uh, in fact, just uh, Friday it was, Alaska Department of Fish and Game released the draw results for you hunters out there. And now you know what your opportunity is or isn't. Like me, I made a donation this year and got drawn for nothing. And I looked several of you up too, and you didn't get drawn either. So, <laughs> well, I'll be fishing this summer. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm thinking about a bike ride or a multi-day hike or, or even just a day hike, one of the things that I look for in a hike are actually two things. One, I like elevations, right, because I want to see a view. I want to get up where the breeze is to knock down the bugs. And I also prefer a loop uh, to an out and back, right? The out and back hike is kind of annoying. You get to the out point, and you're like, good, that was all new. And then you turn around, and you start walking back. You're like, I've seen this before. You know, it's like unpacking after a trip. That's annoying. So here's the interactive part of uh, our service here. I would like you to uh, greet your neighbor, uh, introduce yourself to them if you haven't met them yet. Um, you know, if they're particularly attractive and appear to be single, maybe you're looking for a phone number or, you know, something like that. But uh, greet your neighbor. Here's the question to ask. What's your favorite Fairbanks hike? Your favorite Fairbanks hike. All right, ready, go. Good luck. Okay, let me start pulling you back. If she hasn't given you her phone number by now, she's not gonna. So accept it. So I'm curious, some of the favorite hikes that you heard about. How many Angel Rocks? Did we get that one out there? Yes, nice day hike. Any, pretty accessible. Almost anybody can do it. It's great, especially with kids. Uh, how about Granite Tours? I've never done this one. I've lived here 20 years. I've never done it. This is the summer. I've got a goat hunt planned in August, and I need to train. And I need to put some miles on my boots and on my pack and on my back. So I think this is going to be a good, I don't know, maybe a day or two-day trip just to put some miles on. Uh, how about Kasugi Ridge? Maybe a new one for you. I haven't done that one either. But this might happen this summer. We'll see how things go. I'm told the views that from there, especially of McKinley, are outstanding. So, also bears are prevalent. Just, just, just you know, FYI. Resurrection Trail down in Kenai. Anybody have that? Anybody do that one? None of you. First service has got you guys beat on that one. Okay, here's my all-time favorite of all of my time in Alaska. Actually. Favorite thing I've ever done in Alaska over, over 20 years, the Chilkoot Trail. Yeah, oh, oh, hey, here we go. We've got some Chilkoot fans over here. 
I didn't know that was coming. Uh, we did this. We did it in five days back in 2019. A bunch of us went, and it was my favorite thing I've done, and the company was so sweet and special and just hilarious. Um, a marriage even emerged out of that trip, so <laughs> it was kind of funny. But um, that was a great trip. So like I said, a couple of things. I look forward uh, in a good hike, elevation, but I want a loop because the out and back to me is kind of, kind of annoying. But actually, as we look at Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey here, we're looking at the second part of it. What we realize is their trip, their journey, their adventure was unfortunately an out and back. It wasn't a loop. But actually, we can see some of their ministry strategy in this. In a sense, their way out, all the way towards Derby, which is where they terminated, was uh, sort of missions, or taking the gospel to where it wasn't. And then on their way back, we see that they were really interested in disciple-making, ensuring that those who had come to faith in Christ were strengthened and encouraged. And um, I brought a map here, a little bit better than last week's map. You like that one better? Yeah. So here we can see their route. They started in Antioch there, middle right side of your screen, and uh, through, left, leaving through Seleucia to the island of Cyprus, uh, arriving in Salimus, and then out of Paphos, and then up to uh, Perga and Italia. I showed you pictures of Perga and Italia last week. If you weren't here, you missed it. They were amazing pictures. And then up to Sidian, Antioch. And so today we kind of pick up heading down to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And then unfortunately, they got to do the back. But this was a journey that took them two years and about 1,400 miles with some sailing in there too. Um, but instead of just looking at this sort of geographically today, what I want to do is look at it strategically. I want to look at their gospel witness as they, had, as they went through this journey and take from them what we can to inform us as gospel witnesses today on how we might be better prepared to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ and for his gospel of grace. So chapter 14, um, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So the first thing I want to pull out here, and again, I'm just trying to be really practical today. We, as we look at their journey, what can we learn from them to inform uh, us as witnesses for Christ. I think the first is this, to prepare to speak the gospel effectively. To speak the gospel effectively. Um, it is true that the gospel in and of itself is powerful to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. And it is true that God is sovereign over salvation, right? We, we saw this explicitly last week. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Or elsewhere, we've seen the phrase that he granted repentance. So the gospel is powerful in and of itself. And God is the agent that draws people to a saving knowledge of himself. 
But that doesn't mean that we should be ill-prepared or sloppy as witnesses of the gospel ourselves. And I think the apostles are good examples for us here and elsewhere. They were skilled. Uh, The passage says they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how he carefully constructs good arguments that are effective. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, he says this, The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so we see the interweaving there, both of the power of God through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, but also just the effort and the intention to make good arguments that demolish the faulty thinking of others. I think there's a bit of a fallacy that is present in and among Christians, especially as it comes to the Holy Spirit, where they kind of tend to think that God the Holy Spirit only works in spontaneous ways. It has to be unplanned, unexpected in order for it to be of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's got to be spontaneous. And i got to tell you, friends, I, I don't believe that for a minute. I think the Holy Spirit can absolutely work through a person's skill and training and expertise and preparation. And I think that the apostles show us this here. They spoke effectively. Something does not have to be spontaneous to be of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. If, if you, for your place of business where you work or, or whatever, if they asked you to go to a trade show or uh, some event to basically represent a product that your company makes or a service that you guys provide, and you were to be the spokesperson, how would you prepare for that? You would. I mean, you would, you would go carefully. You would think about, well, here's the data that I need to present. Here's how I need to show its benefit to those who are there. I need to anticipate questions. I need to think about my presentation and my words, and I want to try to look like I know what I'm talking about. You would prepare yourself to make a good presentation. Well, God has told us that we are his ambassadors, as though he is making his appeal through us for others to come to a saving knowledge of him. I think we should prepare to speak effectively. We should be prepared. And in your notes, I've given you some of my favorite books on evangelism and apologetics uh, that are places that you can start to kind of shore up your skill. Secondly, Be patient with earnest seekers. Be patient. Earnest seekers uh, are going to have questions. And it's going to likely be a process that takes place over time for someone to come to believe the gospel message. Um, I think a really helpful exercise that you can do, I did this this last week, is this. If I were an unbeliever and someone were sharing the gospel with me, What questions might I have? So what questions does unbelieving Eric have about the gospel and about Christianity? So I jotted some of mine down. Maybe these might be some of yours. Here's the first one. Why did Jesus have to die? For God to forgive people? Why can't God, who loves us, just go, I forgive you? Why is the death of Jesus necessary? That's something I would want to know. Or... 
How can God be good if he as a father sent his son to die? That doesn't sound like a good father. How is God still good when that's what he's willing to do? That's a question I would have. Or um, how do we know that the Bible in front of us is the revealed word of God, inspired? There are other ancient writings of the day. Uh, We know that it wasn't affirmed to be uh, scripture, all of it, until 397 AD, right? A few hundred years after the time of Christ. How do I know I can trust this? How do I know that this is of God? Or, if there's a God, why do we still see so much evil in the world? Why doesn't he interject himself and do something about it? Which is actually a great invitation for the gospel because he did interject himself, right? But that's another, another point. Here's one of my biggest questions I think I would have. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, and your followers of Christ, apprentices of his, students of his, imitators of his, why are there so many Christian jerks out there? Right? That's a question I would have. So it's maybe a reasonable exercise for you to go through to think about what is unbelieving you? What kind of questions do you have? These are the same questions your friends have. And, And learn to provide good answers for them that would be satisfying for you that you hope might be for them. But what I want to show here is unbelieving Eric is probably not going to simply take four spiritual laws, a chick track, bridge illustration. That's probably not going to be enough in and of itself for me to believe. It may be a starting point, but I'm going to need conversation over time. I'm going to want dialogue. And I'm going to have, if I'm earnestly seeking, I'm going to have a series of questions. I think Christians should prepare themselves for this. Francis Schaeffer was once asked, how do you know when you're ready to critique somebody else's theological position? And I think he gives an amazing answer that's instructive for us. He says this, when you can articulate his own perspective to him in such a manner that he responds, yes, that's exactly what I believe, with no modifications, further clarifications, or caveats, then you're ready to critique his argument. I think that's a great example for us as Christians because what we're doing is we're presenting to either an atheist or agnostic or a secularist, we're presenting a message of salvation through the gospel, which is in a sense a refutation of their belief. But we should probably take time to understand where they really are and to listen to them, to listen for understanding, true understanding, not just ask and look for opportunity to give immediate rebuttal but to listen for understanding. So I think we enter into dialogue with them. We should entertain their questions. But here's another thing. Then be willing to ask questions of them. Not snarky, you know, mean questions. But just if they're presenting a worldview, they have difficult questions to answer as well. The burden of proof is not all on us. And I think we can turn this around gently and ask some things like, if you don't believe there's a God... What's your view of how we all got here? I'm curious. Or, if there's no God, how do you explain the intricacy and the fine-tuning of the universe such that it supports life and is really the only place in all of the galaxies and exploration where we find that? Or, if there is no God, um, who do you claim that Jesus was? How do you explain his 
teachings, his following, his miracles, his resurrection from the dead, you know, and, and that all of these things coincide with prophecies that appeared hundreds of years earlier. Just, you know, how do you explain that? Or, if there's no God, and this is a question of C.S. Lewis, a question he proposes in Mere Christianity, how do you explain your sense of morality? Where does that come from? These are good questions that someone who is a secularist or an atheist has to provide answers for to support their viewpoint. So don't accept all of the burden of proof. If someone is disagreeing, that's fine. But genuinely ask, so how is it that you address these things? I'm curious. I want to learn. So personally, when, I, when, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone and I'm getting peppered with questions, I take that as a good sign. That's a sign that someone's listening. That's a sign that someone realizes, actually, this is a big decision, a life-altering decision, and there's some things I would want to have figured out first. Um, and so I, I think that's just a great example here. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. And I, and I want to offer this as well, too. Boldness doesn't mean that we're on the street corner on a milk crate wagging our finger and yelling, okay? Boldness doesn't mean loud. Boldness doesn't mean shrill. Boldness can mean a steady, quiet confidence over time, okay? Uh, I was traveling to Boston recently, as you know, and uh, one of my favorite places to go there is the Boston Common Market because they have a pastrami sandwich there that'll bring a tear to your eye. It's very good. So on my annual pilgrimage to get my pastrami sandwich, there was a, a group of street preachers on the corner. And it was, it was hard to walk by. I was just like, is this the best we've got? I hope this isn't the only example of boldness out there. I think we can do better. I think there are more effective ways. God can use that. But it didn't look like it. I'll say that. Thirdly here, be prepared for rejection. And understand that if someone rejects your gospel presentation to them, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the gospel itself. They're rejecting the work of Christ. Uh, and also remember that your input may just be one part of this process which would take place over time. Again, the Apostle Paul teaches us this elsewhere. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Again, last week uh, we, we saw the passage, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. God is sovereign over salvation, and we are just the instruments that he uses um, along the way. Evangelism is a collaborative process. We do our part, but God does his part. Uh, and maybe a good image of this for you is think of a mechanic or, or just a weekend warrior working on his car, trying to bring some life back to it. You know, the mechanic has a sense of wisdom and knowledge and has power and agency, and then there are tools and instruments that he uses, and both are necessary. We're the tools and the instruments that God uses. But he is, he is the wise, powerful agent who makes it work. So, uh, yes, third thing here, or fourth, rather. Know when to back off. Know when to back off. 
Um, this is my own opinion here. Uh, so I, Eric, say, not the Lord, but <laughs> I think better to leave someone wanting more than wishing they had never started a conversation with you in the first place. Right? That's just gentleness. That's just being respectful. And in my opinion today, evangelism is going to look more like a process than an event. Okay? And that might actually look a little bit different from what we see in the New Testament, especially with Peter and Paul when they go into the synagogues first and are preaching primarily to Jews initially. Because the proclamation there is pretty simple. In a Jewish congregation, you have those who are steeped in the Old Testament, who know the prophecies of Messiah, are looking for him, in a sense have missed him. So the proclamation is simple. The gap is small. Jesus was him. The prophecies pointed to him. You killed him, but he rose from the dead. So the gap is kind of small. But as you move to Gentiles, that's a non-Jewish audience, so that's who you and I are going to be predominantly witnessing to, the gap is larger. They're not steeped in the Old Testament. They don't know the prophecies looking for a Messiah. It's not easy just to declare that Jesus is him. They don't even know they're looking for or in need of a Savior. And so gospel proclamation, especially to a Gentile congregation, is going to be more of a process. And it's probably going to come from some different angles. We'll see that more and more as Paul and Barnabas are speaking uh, to Gentiles, especially, say, at Mars Hill in, in chapter 17 of Acts. We'll see that more. Um, but given a Gentile audience who isn't looking for a Savior, uh, gospel witness is going to take more time, uh, more like a conversation, which is why I really love that phrase, gospel conversations. Um, one little acronym that I learned that I think is helpful for this, I learned this back in high school, and it's still in my mind, so it's got to be pretty good because I've forgotten a lot over the years. But it's CPR, which stands for cultivate, cultivate a relationship with a purpose, and then plant, plant Christ into that relationship, which could be merely identifying yourself as a Christian, indicating that you're going to worship on Sunday, beginning to ask spiritual questions. And then the last one, R, is reap. Cultivate, plant, reap. Reap is the point where you present a clear articulation of the gospel and ask for a response. But I think seeing evangelism as a process is more gentle and more respectful in our particular cultural moment. But if you're hitting a brick wall with resistance and even hostility, as the apostles regularly did, know when to back away. No one to back off and trust that God is sovereign over salvation and that he may well use somebody else in the future after your effort. All right, let's look at verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame, and he had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet! And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down from, to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he, wanted, uh, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, 
They tore their clothes and rushed, on, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, uh, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Um, I brought a few more pictures today because I actually got to go into the town of Lystra. We didn't make it all the way to Derby, so here's some pictures from my trip to Turkey in 2019. Here's an exciting bridge. <laughs> but actually, what's interesting about this is that bottom layer that you can see, there's, you can see this almost looks like two different layers to the bridge. The bottom layer is the Roman layer all the way back to 456 um, AD, and then the layer above it is an Ottoman layer, so just an, kind of an old artifact, what was there. And then here is the church that was there. Um, Constantine's mother, Helen, used to journey through here on spiritual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And this was the chapel that she had ordered would be built there. And then here's the inside of it. It looks just like Bethel Church, right? <laughs> um, but what I see in this passage that I want to draw out is that we would combine our gospel message with gospel ministry. Paul sees that this man has a need, and he meets it. I mean, the need, obviously, here is to provide a miraculous healing. I wish I had that tool in my bag. God's never used me that way. I'm open, Lord, if you would allow that, but I've never been used that way. But there's plenty of relief and service and assistance that I can provide by way of ministry to others. And you can as well. We can encourage our neighbor. We can share food or a fun experience with them. Uh, we can help them with the home project. We can offer them child care. If they, you know, imagine a, a mom with a bunch of kiddos going, I'd love to just go to the grocery store and shop alone. And maybe you would say, I'll offer you one hour of childcare. One, just one, one. What a blessing that would be. We can provide ministry to those around us that is, that is gracious and reflective of the gospel itself. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a, a man who came to church. I think you guys know I play basketball a couple days a week downtown. And this, is, this guy, his name is Bob. He was someone that I had played ball with, actually, for quite a few years. And one Sunday, I'm, uh, you know, we're in the middle of service. I get up to preach, and I see that Bob has come in late as a visitor to the church and sat back in the corner in the safe zone. And he's sitting there, and he tilts his head and looks at me. And I recognize that we see one another, and I get through the message. And then afterwards, he makes a beeline up to me. And he goes, Eric, I didn't know you were a pastor I was like, yeah, I've been here for, you know, a couple decades now. And, he, and then he said, you know, I was thinking about all the times we've played basketball together, and then when I saw you get up to preach, I thought, now my heart was in my throat. Like, 
where's this going? When I saw you up there preaching, I thought, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh, I could have been really bad, right? He could have said, I thought, what? This guy's a Christian and a pastor. Are you kidding? Because I go pretty hard at basketball. I'm competitive. I'm competitive. My point is that our gospel witness should be congruent with our gospel ministry and our very nature with people around us. You know, imagine if he had walked up here and said otherwise. Couldn't hardly believe that anybody would have hired you for that, Eric. Uh, sixth. Oh, I see. I got, a, got behind here. Combine gospel message with gospel ministry. But sixth, be prepared for mixed responses. We've, already, we've seen this through the missionary journey. In some cases, people were for them. What a great, this is great news. Or other people were like, are you kidding? Get the rocks. Let's stone these guys. Or in this case, actually, let's worship them. Right? So there's a, there's a crazy uh, array of different responses. And one of the responses we'll have to be prepared for is if God uses you in the life of someone as they come to know Christ and come to salvation, sometimes um, they will ascribe too much credit to you. And you'll have to deflect that. New Christians are hilarious, right? I don't know how long it's been since you've been around a new Christian. But they're super funny. Uh, new Christians are excited. They have this, this sort of newness of life. They, have this, they feel unburdened really by the guilt of sin and shame that they now trust has been taken care of in Christ. They have hope for eternity built on something. They have a new family, a Christ-centered family that they get to belong to. And so they have this infectious enthusiasm that sometimes can be a little bit clumsy. You know, they, they, they don't pray right yet. You know, they, they, they pray things like, yo, God, you're rad, you know. They haven't quite learned the language. They're lovely to be around, but sometimes they're like new puppies. You know, they're kind of bouncing around with greater zeal than theological precision. And one of the risks of a new Christian is that because God may have used you in, their, in the process of them coming to salvation, you kind of can be sort of the most tangible expression of God in their life. And they can put too much on you. And you need to be able to deflect and be ready to praise God. Seventh here. Be able to show the true, the good, and the beautiful. One of the ways that we do this as Christians is by use of apologetics. Uh, and probably the principal passage in Scripture for apologetics or where this emerges from uh, is in 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. That's a key word. We'll come back to that. An answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the word answer here in verse 15, uh, or defense in some of your translations, the Greek word for it is apologia, from which we get our word in discipline, apologetics. That's where that comes from. But what I want you to see that is that in Peter's use of it there in that verse, and as we see it on display in the missionary journey, is that apologetics accompanies evangelism. The two ought to be intertwined. And I think that's something that we need to kind of work back to because in our day and age, 
I think that there's a big divide between apologists and evangelists, as though they're two separate disciplines that don't intermingle very well. The two ought to be connected. And the apostles here give some apologetics, but they give a beautiful apologetic. They show the goodness of God as they explain the common grace of God who has left his fingerprints on this world and provides rain from heaven and crops and good-tasting food and even gives people joy. And so the beauty of their apologetics here, and I think something I wish we might learn from this, is that they don't just present the cold, hard, ugly truth, but they show that that truth is actually good and beautiful. That the gospel is a reordering and rewebbing of our lives of that which was lost at the fall. Be willing to show what is true and good and beautiful, not just providing sterile proofs of Christianity, but showing why it matters and why it's good. Um, Alistair McGrath has said that uh, C.S. Lewis was one who did this really well. Uh, I think his quote is helpful. He says, he says of Lewis, his genius as an apologist lay in his ability to show how a viewpoint derived from the Bible and the Christian tradition was able to offer a more satisfactory explanation of common human experience than its rival, especially atheism, that he himself had once espoused. That is a great discipline for us as Christians. Not just to say, here's the truth, it's cold and hardly, but just take it. Yeah, just take it. But instead to be able to say, here's the truth, and look how it's so much better than the alternatives. Look how beautiful it is in reordering life. Look how, how a benefit it is, not just to you, but really to all of society. For that's what the gospel is. Um, this is expressed personally by C.S. Lewis best in his well-known quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only that I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that is what the gospel should be for us. Not just something we look at, but something because of it that we see through everything else. And I think that will be a, a more beautiful way of acting as gospel witnesses. All right, we're on the home stretch here. Verse 21, returning to Antioch. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Sidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So here is um, the last point is this. Encourage new believers so that they will become faithful disciples. Uh, God is not looking for mere converts. 
but he's looking for those converts to become followers of Jesus Christ. I, I love the title of Dallas Willard's book, which is in your notes. Um, it's worth the price of the book just for the title. The Great Omission, Teaching People to Obey All That I've Commanded You. That, in his opinion, is the great omission. So the out part of their trip was really largely missions, but the back part of their trip, we see that they're doing disciple-making, encouraging people in the faith so that they, would, that they would stand. So here's our out and back journey once again, from Antioch to Cyprus, up to Pergana, Italia, Sidian Antioch, and today we saw Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. the out part of the trip, the missions part of their trip. But the back was disciple-making, teaching people to obey and to stand strong in the faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the example of these apostles, for the way they were saturated in the gospel, the courage that they showed to go to hostile regions, new places, the openness they showed to the work of the Holy Spirit who had opened a door for the gospel with the Gentiles. Thank you for what we can learn of them and their effective speaking, their patience, uh, their willingness to move on when the door closed. Thank you for their perseverance, Lord, not just to make converts, but also to see those who had come to faith become disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would remember and know this is our calling too. We are not here simply to believe for us and for our own sake, but we are here to be your ambassadors. Empower us, lead us, equip us as we go to be your messengers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.